Okay, uh, so you got a bit of a thicker packet this week um, because there's some uh, a lot of important stuff this week, and uh, it's a very uh, debated and controversial topic. And so I thought that I would uh, provide some some more resources there for you. I have the usual. Um, table of illusions and parallels, uh, and then I also have some stuff that I put together on um, describing some different viewpoints, and then a couple of brief uh, blog articles that I, I just copy and pasted on here. Um, and then below that I have photocopied a couple of, uh, a couple of essays or chapters. Uh, and then I also have one more up here which I didn't pass out, but if you want it, I can, uh, can give it to you. It's a little, it's a, definitely a little more meaty. Um, but uh, for the most part, everything that you have, especially in the, the, the articles and the, the blog articles, you shouldn't have a problem with it all. Um, some of the photocopied stuff is, uh, I, I trust if you, if you um, sit down and read through it, you should be able to uh, grasp most of it. Um, I tried to let's see. Were there any? There weren't. Any, there wasn't. I, I've read through them all, and I, there wasn't anything that I thought like, oh, this is, this would be too confusing. Uh, one, and I'll I'll mention this again when we get to it. But one thing, uh, if you see the word, um, looks like Perusia, uh, Perusia. Uh, it's you, uh, P A R O U S I A. Uh, it's used, might be used in there. Um, it, it just means the second coming. It's a Greek word, which means coming, and it's used to talk about the second coming of Christ and biblical scholars. To switch it up, they'll just throw that in there. So if you see that, that's what it means. Um, but other than that, you should, should be fine. And again, if you want this, this longer one, it's, uh, it's, it's by this guy named Sam Storms, and there's an article in there, a blog post that he makes, and it essentially just expands on that, and it's, it's really helpful. So if you want it, uh, I'll, I can pass those out at the end, but um, we'll walk through most of that stuff once we get into chapter 20. At the start, though, we'll, we'll be hopping into uh, the rest of Revelation 19, which we, uh, dealed with the, we dealt with the first half last week. We also uh, went through chapter 18 and 17, so we covered a lot of ground last week. Uh, and and what, we, what we talked about was Babylon and the, the destruction and judgment of Babylon. Uh, Babylon here, it, it represents not a literal physical city, but it is uh, representative of all of the, the, uh, the nations, any, any culture or, or people or uh, government or whatever that is against uh, the things of God that stands in opposition to uh, to the body of Christ and to, uh, to the slain lamb. Um, and God has pronounced judgment on them and it, it portrayed their final defeat. And we, we really came to the end of history, uh, in a sense, where John showed us the final judgment of Babylon. And so now as we get into, uh, and, well, and then we got into chapter 19, which then shifted to the, um, the, the wedding supper of the lamb. Uh, the, his bride was prepared for him. There's this, this feast, uh, and the, the bride is the, the people of God. And so we, we talked about the contrast in the book between the bride and, and the harlot, who uh, the bride represents the people of God clothed in, in fine linen and white, 
which is the righteous deeds of the saints and the, the harlot who is, uh, is uh, wearing um, the, the clothes of a prostitute and is, um, is deceiving uh, the nations. And um, we, we talked about that contrast there, and so we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff again when we get into chapter 21 and we get into the great, uh, the great text about the, the new Jerusalem coming down and uh, the bride um, being prepared. Um, but today, now we, we move into the second half of chapter 19, and it's, uh, it's connected uh, to what has come before it, but it is also distinct in some ways. Uh, as John does over and over and over, we find uh, a, a recapitulation or uh, this kind of uh, different view of these same events, these same things happening. We get to the end of history in John turns it back around, he switches it up and shows from a different angle the same things happening. And so um, we've seen several times we get, uh, we get to the day of the Lord, the final coming of Jesus, uh, the judgment of Babylon, of the beast, of all these things, uh, and then it gets th- turned back around and, and John will rehash that in a different way. And so uh, that's what we have going on here. We get this transition and, and we move into now uh, another perspective on the final coming of Jesus on the day of the Lord. Uh, this is probably a, a passage a lot of you are familiar with, with uh, the, um, the, the great, uh, mighty King Jesus coming back on a white horse. Uh, and so as we get into the text, uh, chapter 19, verse 11, Heaven is opened, and, and John sees this vision of a white horse. Uh, heaven being open signifies that, that there's this divine revelation going on, and the one sitting on the horse is faithful, true, and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. Um, it's a beautiful description there of, of the, the one coming on the horse. He is faithful and true. He, he will uh, come through on what he promises. He will be be faithful. That is uh, what he is called here. And, and in righteousness, he judges. He is, he is completely just and he will make war uh, justly and righteously. Uh, there are so many uh, allusions here in these, in these t- uh, verses, as, as always. Here um, picks up on this uh, metaphor, this um, divine warrior uh, motif that we see in the Old Testament of the, the Messiah. And it's found in Isaiah 11 and Psalm 72, for instance. And um, a lot of this imagery we've seen already in the book, like we saw it in chapters 1 and uh, maybe 2 and 3 as, as Jesus was portrayed. Um, so in verse 12, his eyes like a flame of fire. We saw that back in chapter 1 when John originally had this vision. And uh, there's a few things that are, are, are significant here in, in verse 12. On his head are many diadems. Why might that be significant? Yeah. The Lord over this, the Lord over that. Yeah, it represents his sovereignty and his power. Um, was there any one or anything else in the book that had diadems? The beast. Beast. <laughs> yeah, and the dragon. Uh, what's significant, I think, is the dragon had seven diadems. The beast had ten diadems, and Christ has many diadems. Um, he he outmatches them. They had this false, uh, this this false, um, fake, uh, 
power that they were they were putting off. They uh, they were deceiving people, and Christ has many diadems. His power is endless. Um, uh, I think there's extreme significance there in that that comparison. Well, Satan has authority over the earth for now. Yeah. For the yeah. Uh, and, and he has a name. It says a name written that no one knows but himself. And uh, this is this is cool as well. And this might seem seem kind of odd because then it tells us his name. No one knows it. But um, I think the point here, if we if we look at names in in the Bible, there's a lot of significance there, and, and especially um, in the, the the power that uh, comes with it. And a lot of times you give someone a name. Uh, it's interesting even noting some of uh, some of the um, allusions and connections. Uh, Proverbs 30, uh, 30 verse 4, uh, there's this, this, this poem which uh, is later than used in John 3, uh, picked up in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and he uh, alludes to that, and it's clearly, I think, talking about the Messiah. Uh, and in, in Proverbs 30 verse 4, it says... Uh, what is the name? Uh, who is the name of this God, and what is the name of His Son? Um, and and so there, there's significance that no one knows His name, and especially uh, as this judgment is about to be carried out on on unbelievers, the full revelation of Christ's identity, His name, it's it's connected, bound with His identity. Um, that that is uh, what names are in, in, in the Bible. Often it is a marker of your identity. Uh, the full revelation of Christ's identity, especially in as it relates to, to judgment, um, will only be revealed when he returns in glory. Uh, unbelievers who do not know the Lord, they will only uh, and finally know him then on that day. They, they, they will have denied him continually until that day they see him and they will, uh, they will know who he is. And um, think about the, the, uh, the hymn that Paul writes in, in Philippians 2 about uh, Jesus. And he says at the end, uh, and, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue uh, will confess. Um, and it says, uh, let, me, let me just turn there. Philippians 2. Uh, uh, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, notice we're talking about his name here as well, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, there's a lot of significance in, in your name, and, it, and here it is representing his identity, who he is, and uh, it is revealed in his judgment of these people who they, they will not uh, willingly submit to him. They will be forced to submit to him, and they will confess that he is Lord, uh, though it will be uh, out, of, out of his judgment upon them here. So there's, uh, yeah, just some as we, we talked about biblical theology last week, um, and, and that's a, a, a theme in Scripture is names. Is and there I, significance uh, to the name being written on him? It seems weird, like you have a name, but it's, yeah. it seems weird to have your name written on him. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there is, is significance here. Uh, we talked several weeks ago with the mark of the beast and with the, the seal of God. You have it on your forehead or on your, your hand. Um, if we remember back to uh, the, the beast 
who I mentioned had diadems, said on his diadems were written blasphemous names. Uh, they it showed kind of his ownership by the dragon. The dragon, that is Satan, was the one empowering the beast, and he had blasphemous, blasphemous names on his head. And now we have um, the Son of God who has many diadems on his head, and his, the name is written on him. Not even say it doesn't say it explicitly, but but they're written on his diadem. It, it is uh, he is uh, under um, he he is sent from uh, the Father and is commissioned by the Father, and he has authority and power. Um, there's also significance in the other places that his name is written. Uh, let's see uh, down in verse 16 on his robe and on on his thigh, especially. Um, the thigh or the hip, it's, it's referring to where your sword would be kept. Um, and his sword, isn't, his sword isn't on his hip here, it's in his mouth. Uh, and, it rep- and we'll talk about what that represents. And so there, there's a connection there in his robe, his, um, his, his kingship, his sovereignty. This is the Son of God. And, and, the, and the Greek word for crown, is it Stephanos? Or is it yeah, 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 nice job. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I think it is here. Yeah, I'd have to check, but... Uh. Well, that's why the people that get cast into the pit have no appeal because of the sovereignty who cast them. Yeah. And, and they'll have no doubt about that when they get cast in. Yeah. That's something I've heard say that, that the people that go to hell have no... That's why they have no recourse. They have no appeal. There's nobody... Higher no appeal to them. Yeah. And... <clears throat> interesting to think about um, I've been thinking about the name of Jesus just um, in some other things but thinking about how we just so often default to just Jesus right we call him Jesus and when we think about him in creation we call him Jesus the Bible talks about him as the son of God um, the Bible talks about him as the Christ the Messiah the Bible talks about him as the, the son word of man of pardon the word of God. The word of God. The Bible talks, you know, here he's, he's called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I know for myself, I think like, oh, I really need to like think about the name of Jesus in the same way that the Bible shows me that it's speaking about him. I mean, he was Jesus when he came to earth, like in the incarnation. That's when he was Jesus. And he's still Jesus, obviously, as the as the God man who's redeemed us in heaven, but his name is so much bigger. And it makes sense since we've been talking every week that the glories of the things that we cannot see fully now, but we will see someday. And the same is true for the glory and majesty of Jesus and just his name and who he is. Well, the part that gets me is all things were created through him, by him, and for him. Mm-hmm. That means he would, he's been God forever. Just like God's been God forever, that puts their own, their own you know, yeah. Uh, and talking about uh, the name of Jesus again, uh, back to biblical theology. So uh, when we look at, um, and this is a whole whole other topic, but uh, the the way that the Old Testament is arranged in our Bibles is different than how it was arranged in Jesus' day and uh, in in the Jewish tradition. Um, it's arranged differently. I think there's significance to it. Uh, that's how I read it. It's in a different order. And if you look at 
some of the seams or the section breaks in the entire flow of the, the Old Testament in that order, um, there's significant point things that are brought out in what, what uh, we refer to as those seams, the things that bind it together. Uh, one of those things, if you go at the end of, um, end of Deuteronomy into Joshua, which would be the seam of the first section moving from um, the Pentateuch or the Torah um, into the, the next section, which in the Hebrew Bible is called the Prophets, uh, you have the people of God coming out of, of captivity, uh, coming out of slavery, and being led into the promised land. Uh, and Moses dies, and they are led by Joshua. Uh, Hebrew Yeshua means uh, Yahweh saves. And then uh, at the end of the, the next section of, of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the end of the prophets moving into the third section called the writings, you have uh, have Israel in exile in, in Babylon. If, uh, They've been exiled for their sin and their rebellion. Um, and especially in, in Haggai and Zechariah, you have, uh, they, they are sent back by, uh, by Cyrus, the king of Assyria, and you have um, uh, Zedekiah or someone, um, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, I think. And then you also have uh, Yeshua, the high priest, who are leading the people back from exile. Yahweh saves. Um, but at the end of that exile, and they, coming back, it's clear that, that this was not the, the promised return that they had hoped for. The temple is rebuilt, but it's nothing like what it was. They are awaiting uh, the glory of God to come reside in the temple. They are awaiting uh, a true spiritual return from exile. And then you get into the New Testament, and you have another Yeshua who leads his people out of spiritual exile who uh, in Luke 2, he is the glory of God promised in, uh, in Haggai that fills the temple. Um, and so this connections here that we see throughout the entire Bible and the connection there with a the, with the name, uh, Yahweh saves. And um, that, that is what, uh, what, uh, what Jesus, uh, the name Jesus means is, is God will save. Uh, and so there's a lot of significance there. And so here he's the word of God and uh, I think we, I mean, we can say this so often. We can say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the word of God. Uh, but, I mean, as Sherry said, just thinking about the implications of that and what that means, it's really uh, mind-boggling when we look at John, the beginning of uh, John's gospel. In, in the beginning was the word, right? And the word was with God. The word was God. Uh, he is dwelled among his people. And then Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke through the prophets in these last days he has spoke through his son who is the word of god um and so there's there's so much significance here into jesus being the word of god and we can unpack that a little bit one one thing that is, is significant is jesus he, he's, he's not just the word he is the word of god he's god's message he's god's uh, god's word to the world uh and and this message is one of salvation and judgment, and especially here it's in, in this context of judgment. Uh, the beginning of verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Uh, this is, is, to understand this, we need to have the Old Testament allusions in our mind. There, there are uh, some people that I've, I've heard who, uh, they point this out and say, oh, well, look, he has a robe that's covered in blood, but it's before the army starts. And um, there's all sorts of interpretations people try and uh, pose. There's 
certain uh, people who, based on some other theological views they have about nonviolence and pacifism, say that, oh yeah, Jesus isn't actually fighting here. He's covered in his own blood. And um, I, I think that, that there is some merit to seeing throughout the book of Revelation how there is this irony of uh, Jesus conquered through laying down his life. Um, but here we have this context of judgment and, and especially the nature of apocalyptic literature. Um, I think it's pressing things too far to, to, to say, oh, well, it's, it's before the battle officially started. No, this is in the context of battle. And we see that when we look at, the, especially the Old Testament allusions. Um, he, here's, here's an instance where we have texts in the Old Testament that are continually developed in Genesis 3, right, we have the promise of the one, the, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 49, in Jacob's blessing to his sons, uh, Judah is, is blessed and said that there will be, uh, be one who comes from the line of Judah who will be uh, like a lion. He will be a king. The scepter shall not depart from beneath his feet. He, he will, his robes will be covered with grapes, with wine. Uh, and that's it's it's kind of a um, uh, that that's symbolic of um, prosperity and that he can afford and drink wine and that that's picked up though and continued in um, Numbers 24 but especially significant is Isaiah 63 where we have um, God Himself. In fact, we should we should just turn there Isaiah 63 if you if you want to turn there turn there in your Bible. Starting in verse 1, Who is this who comes from Adam in crimson garments from uh, Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood, literally their, their juice, spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Um, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their, uh, their, their juice on the earth. Um, it's a very gory, uh, very vivid text of God's judgment. And there it's Yahweh himself doing this. And here we have Jesus doing this. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Uh, that's one thing this passage clearly shows, especially in verse 16, the description of he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Who can this be but God himself? This has to be, be God. Uh, and the statement that I laid down my life. Has way more meaning than getting some guy get nailed to the cross. Yeah. He laid down his life as God, lowered himself to be some sort of perceived as a human being. Yeah. And then got nailed to the cross. It's interesting that his that he his garments are are crimson, but his followers like he's with his army, the army's on white. He's like bloody. He's kind of like like whatever is going to happen. It's just he's sovereign, he does it himself. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't need his army to do it for him. Yeah. 
Well, and that's such a um, biblical, the- theological thread all through scripture also that uh, we saw this in Psalms. I, I mean, we just said it over and over. As it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. I mean, the king is the representative of, of what is for the people. If it's good for the king, if he works out on their behalf, then it is good for them. Like, So that whole idea. Yeah, it's neat to see that the saints aren't in yeah. Well, the Creator is the only one who has authority over creation. Yeah, and it and it is, uh, and so we have the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following Him. Um, and I think this is the the saints here in the Book of Revelation. Um, those wearing fine linen and white, except for one time, it's always the saints, the people of God. And we have the people of God standing with the Lamb. We saw this back in. Uh, Back in chapter 14 and in 7, standing on Mount Zion with uh, the Lamb who was slain. Um, and, and one of the marks of the saints in Revelation is uh, that they uh, are, are witnesses to the, uh, the message of Christ. They are witnesses to, to Jesus. And here I think that they participate in the battle, so to speak, by being witnesses to, to Jesus and to the gospel. Uh, and, and so Jesus is, is, is here in judgment. He um, is, is covered in, in, in blood in this, this gory picture. And he has a, uh, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And uh, there's several important Old Testament allusions here. We just read uh, Isaiah 63, and so we saw treading the wine press. That is how his, uh, his garments got soaked with juice. Um, he has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. Was, was, we've talked about this before. as this, uh, We saw this image earlier in the book. Um, but the sword of his mouth, it's from uh, Isaiah 49, and uh, also mentioned in Isaiah 11, which then is uh, brought out here, which with he will strike out the nations. Isaiah 11 is, is key here as well. And then um, Psalm 2, we have the Son of God, the Messianic Son of God, who, who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And that is uh, what we find here. So all of this is wrapped up in the, the Old Testament identity of the Messiah. And we see this on Judgment Day. Um, and what we, what we find here, it's not that, uh, and, and especially with the, the sword coming from his mouth, it's not that he's just, you know, holding a sword in his mouth and slaughtering people with it. I, I think the sword, it represents his uh, power, the effectiveness, the, the sovereignty of his judgments, of his word. Um, the sword of his mouth, clearly sword, is connected with judgment. And so this is his judging word, which is, uh, which is effective, which is um, powerful, and, and he is the one who is able to do the judging. And so he makes war through his powerful and effective words and his judgments here. Uh, and, and he rules the world here. He, he executes judgment. Uh, this is clearly based off the intensity of these descriptions. This is clearly the, the, the final um, judgment. This is the, the day of the Lord. This is the, the end of history. And uh, the, we find here uh, these, these great depictions of Christ as he... 
uh, as he fulfills all these Old Testament connections. Do you have a question? Sorry. No. Okay. No. I was also thinking that he spoke creation. Yeah. So he yeah. There's another another great theme in biblical theology is the Word of God, and in fact, I've been trying to. I get a little behind, but um, as I do a Bible read through, I'm trying to. Um, collect for every single book a, a, a theology of the Word of God and just making notes of uh, every time the Word of God is mentioned or um, connections with God speaking or uh, in the New Testament the way that the Word of God, the scriptures are used. Um, it, it, one, of the, one of the main themes in scripture, like you, like you said in Genesis 1, God speaks uh, all of creation into existence and we know that he, his speaking creation was done through Christ, who is the Word of God. It's by the Word of God, His speaking, but by the Word of God, because it is by His Son. So, yeah, it's a very, very important uh, theme in Scripture. That's so interesting, because, like, like, you have God in the Genesis, but we know the Spirit is like breath. So it's almost like the breath is happening, like He's breathing, and He has some sort of intent, but then it's almost like, like, well, I think when John says, you know, like, Yes, that is what I am, will be saying. Yeah. Um, and so as we, as we continue into the second half of, of this, this last part of uh, chapter 19, um, there's an angel calling out and the birds that are flying are, are called in and gathered for the great supper of God where they eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and the riders, of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. Um, it's clear from that description that this is everyone. This is, it's, uh, if you can find a way in that to, to posit that some people are not included here, I can't. It's the, the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and riders, and of men, all men, free and slave, small and great. This is everyone. And, of course, not believers, not the, the saints who are in white, but of all those who dwell on the earth who are not in Christ, who are unbelievers, and they are uh, gathered together, uh, they are judged, and in verse 19, the beast and the kings of the earth who he has uh, joined arms with, they, uh, they gather their armies to make war against the lamb, the, the, uh, the man on the horse, and against his army. Um, what's significant to note is, it, if you read in the ESV, it says, gathered to make war against him, um, it's a bit awkward to translate from, from Greek, but if you were to, to do it more woodenly, it's gathered to make or do the war against him. Uh, there's significance that the article is used there, the definite article, that this isn't just a war, this is the war. Um, because when it says the war, it's referring back to the war that has been mentioned throughout Revelation. We first find it, find it in 1117, and that's the only time when this war is mentioned where it's, uh, uh, it, it doesn't have the article, so it's just a war. And then in chapter uh, 
16 and 20, and in 13 it is the war, because it's, they're all the same war. And as I've talked about through this whole study, this idea of recapitulation and of um, not being chronological, linear, all these things happening in order in these chapters, but they're rehashing the same things. One, as, as Kevin pointed out, that's one of the things I'll point out with this next chapter, that this is, um, this is the war, and it's the same war. And so, so here, this is the war. This is the final war. Uh, and this is, this is the day of, of judgment when the nations gather to, to fight against the Lamb. Yeah, did you have a question, Jeff? Yeah. The chronology is weird. It looks, like, it looks like the birds are gathered. Like, at first I thought, oh, Jesus killed a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Now the birds come and eat their flesh. Like, mm -hmm. But then, because it, it, it seems like he's bloody before the war. Yeah. And, it, and I can't, I'm trying to like work out, is it his own blood from the cross? Or like, yeah. I know he's going to get bloody in the war. Like, and there's, that, there's, there's this idea that he's a warrior and that he will like, execute these people. And that would give him a cause to be bloody. But he's like bloody going into the war. And I'm trying to... Yeah, and that's where I think we, we shouldn't push the chronology too much in uh, this symbolic vision. Uh, an, another thing, here we have this, uh, the, the call for the birds to gather for the supper of God to eat the flesh of, um, of those who are being judged. This is drawn directly from Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, uh, and it's also then brought out in Revelation 20 with Gog and Magog. Uh, and What's interesting is in Ezekiel, it's, um, it's 37 and 38, this judgment on them and this war. And then in 39, it's the birds called to feast afterwards. And here in Revelation, it's the birds called to feast beforehand. And then the judgment, we don't even get Gog and Magog till chapter 20. So there's another argument that if it's chronological, it doesn't work. Uh, and so... One th again, here is, is we have th them called, and then yeah, they're they're called in in verse seventeen and eighteen, and then the war happens, and so there's this sense in which it's kind of happening at once, and and it's all a part of this vision, uh, and it's not, I don't think, a, a linear vision in in a in a neat you way. The blood on his robe is the blood of his enemies, and not his own blood. Yeah, I, I would I would say so based on the the military context and the allusions oh, from the Old Testament. Yeah, and there is a sense when it, it, it may in, encapsulate some of that, the, the ironic uh, twist with, as I mentioned earlier, it's the lamb who was slain, um, and he is the one who conquered, but I think the military context and the, the wrath here, it, it, it leans us towards that this, is his own, uh, this isn't his own blood, it is the blood of his enemies. Uh, well, he and, only has, he's going to have both blood. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Can you, well, the way it's coming to my mind about the birds before the war is it's like, you know, God doesn't do anything without decent, without any decent authority. So I just see it as him calling them all together beforehand so they'll be there. Yeah. And they won't yeah. have to come. Yeah, and I, yeah. It's definitely happening. Yeah, get ready because. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
And so as this, uh, as this section ends, we have the beast captured and the false prophet, uh, and they are uh, thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Uh, they, are, they are judged, they are um, punished eternally. And then the rest, verse 21, slain by uh, the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. Um, I, I think that it's it's significant that he just that he uh, he he seemingly just easily takes care of the beast and the false prophet. Um, you know, it's it's not even a, he doesn't even break a sweat. And then with his powerful word, he he judges everyone else. Um, Christ is sovereign. He he is supreme. He has this power. Um, yeah, that's good because like our hero stories, it's always like, is the hero actually going to prevail? And it's just like, it's not really like... Yeah, it's not even a it's question. It's not like, well, no, there's not a whole lot of tension here. It's like, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, so a couple, a couple of things um, on the end here of 19 before we move into to 20. Um, reading from, uh, from a scholar, Tom Schreiner, he says, uh, the picture of the last judgment is apocalyptic. It's not a transcript of how the final judgment will play out. Nor is it necessary to think that birds will literally feast on human flesh. The language is a vivid way of speaking of the final judgment and eternal destruction of those opposing Jesus Christ. Uh, and then he continues the offering kind of a response, reflection on this entire section. Sometimes it seems as if evil will triumph forever, but such an impression does not accord with reality. Jesus is coming again, and the rulers and people opposed to him will be destroyed. Evil is no illusion, but goodness is always stronger and has an enduring permanence that evil cannot match. God has allowed evil to do its worst for many millennia, but he will not tolerate it forever. When Jesus returns, we will see the last battle, but the battle is remarkably easy, for Jesus simply speaks the word and his enemies are routed and thrown into the lake of fire. We all want to be on the side of the victors. If we belong to Jesus, we are assured of his of ultimate victory. And here's... One thing, and one thing I wanted to do, and especially as we get into the next chapter and some of these um, confusing and controversial things, is take a step back, look at the big picture. What does the book communicate? It's something that I've tried to emphasize throughout. What is the, how is this book relevant for us? Uh, what is the purpose of the book? And so when we think about the purpose of the book, John writes this book for believers. Uh, and, and part of this is to exhort and motivate us, to, uh, to awaken us out of maybe... Um, maybe laziness or spiritual, uh, spiritual laziness, and to, to show us here, clearly, we don't want to be, as we talked about the two suppers, we want to be at the, the, the wedding supper. We don't want to be at the, 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 uh, the final uh, vulture supper. And so it pushes us to persevere, to be faithful, to, uh, to continue on. Uh, and I think that it's, it's powerful here. And then uh, the other just piece of reflection, 
as we talked a, a bit earlier about reflecting about Jesus, uh, we, we probably have such a narrow view of who Jesus is. And I mean, especially if we just think of, you know, Jesus as some, uh, some white guy with a nice, perfect beard, and that's our view of Jesus. The descriptions of Jesus in Revelation, and especially here, are, are just so um, shocking and awesome in a good way. Uh, and they're so important for us as we, we want to have a biblical view of, of Jesus uh, that, that we see all these aspects of him and his, his, the name of Jesus, his identity. When we talk about the identity of Jesus, he is Savior, he is Judge, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, and so all these things are, are so integral to, to who Jesus is, and uh, Revelation well, gives us a, a great picture of that. A big contrast to his descriptions in the Gospels, too, because he was just a non Jewish guy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he was, looked like everybody, pretty much, and, except for what he said he did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, over thought, have you ever thought of being in the kingdom of God and Revelation? In reference to like um, your dad, I'm um, just like my dad. I do things like my dad or my mom. Oh man, I got hands like my mom, feet like my mom. And for me, a lot of times I say, Oh, I am a descendant of Jesus because there's so many things that um, I've done and and so many things I've read about Jesus. And I'm like, Oh, I can see myself doing some of those things that He's done. And um, I don't know, it just does my, my heart proud because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, my forefathers and this, you know, I go back to Adam and Eve and, you know, the whole nine, I see glimpses of myself and their personalities and, and as well as, you know, my parents and, you know, my, my earthly parents, but I can see myself and John and Debbie and Ruth and, you know, all of those and it's just like, the generations that God says there's nothing wrong with the sun. <clears throat> so when I look at something that Ruth did and then I see that it's still prevalent today, um, I'm like, wow, it just it just it's like that woohoo moment <laughs> for me because I realize I'm not that far off um, where times was that I thought I was, but when I can see um, glimpses of my personality or something that they did that I do it makes me feel that much better to know that, yeah, there is nothing new under the sun. These people have done it way before I even knew I was. You know? Yeah. I don't think it makes sense to you guys, but no, it makes yeah. sense to me. Well, and when we talk about <laughs> Revelation, one of the things that's so, and really the entire scriptures, but um, this is drawn out really in Revelation. Um, the, the people of God, the, the body of Christ, that they... And, and we need to rightly understand that we are just humans. God doesn't need us, that, uh, that, that we are saved by his grace. And just being saved doesn't mean we are now gods and we're on the same level as Jesus. Um, but we are invited by God's grace to, to participate and to, uh, to rule with him. Uh, and so I, I, meant, I brought this out at the very beginning of our study that a lot of the ways that... Uh, the, the churches are described are things that they're promised. They're brought out throughout the book and especially in the end of the book. And so when we keep in mind these descriptions of Jesus we've just read uh, to, to the church in, in Smyrna, 
Um, you uh, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. You will also receive a crown. Uh, to the church in uh, Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. So you'll receive a name that no one knows, just like Jesus has a name that no one knows. Uh, let's see to the, the church in Theatira, uh, to the one who conquers, they will, get, they will be given authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as I myself have received authority from my Father. So we will rule with Jesus if we conquer. Um, there's, uh, let's see, there's, there's one more. Um, again, again, to the, the, church in, um, the church in Philadelphia, they will be given a new name. Laodicea. Uh, yeah, white, white robe. And so there's all these connections where we get to identify with Jesus, where we uh, are connected with Christ. And that's, that's beautiful there. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, unless anyone has any, um, any reflection or any, any questions or anything from chapter 19, we can move on to uh, the, the fun stuff, the more complex stuff. Does anyone, anyone have any, any thoughts there or anything that really impacted them? I have one interesting connection. When I think of this Jesus, like he's like at the head of this army, it reminded me when Joshua comes into, right before they go to Jericho, they meet that strange individual. Yeah. And, um, and he says he's the head of the Lord's army. Yep. And then there's that weird thing where he says, take off your shoes, because it's like, it reminds me of like Moses before mm-hmm. he pushed, and I wonder if that's some sort of freedom of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's another picture of the divine warrior and who, who Jesus fulfills. Yeah, well, well let's, let's move on to chapter 20. We'll spend the rest of our time here, uh, and there is certainly a lot to, a lot to talk about. Um, if you look on the, the packet that I gave you that has the Old Testament allusions and parallels, and you flip to the next page, uh, there's views on the millennium in Revelation, Revelation 20. And I'm uh, just going to spend some time walking through this, giving us a framework for, for approaching this passage. And I, I start out just by noting that this uh, Revelation 20 is, is one of, is certainly the most debated text in Revelation. Um, if not one of, or maybe even the most debated text in, in the Bible, it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very controversial passage. And so from the start, we, we need to approach with humility. We, uh, we, we need to acknowledge there's never been uniformity of opinion uh, throughout church history. There's been good peoples on, on different sides. And so uh, we shouldn't let any differing views stir division among us or uh, prohibit us from having fellowship with one another. You know, it's really sad. There was, in the last couple hundred years, a resurgence of some different views on um, the end times, and, and there are some people who became so obsessed with one view that, um, you know, if you didn't hold that same view, they, they, wouldn't, uh, they, they wouldn't go to church with you. They might not even consider you a Christian. Um, and, and we need to acknowledge that this, this is not on the same tier as something like the deity of Christ uh, or, or the, the Trinity or um, the salvation by, by faith alone or the authority uh, of Scripture. This is um, a secondary issue that's reflected, uh, I think, in, um, in in church history. And when we look at the early creeds, there there wasn't any uh, any 
anything that made very clear that was like, yeah, this has to be the view you have to be a Christian. Um, so there's, there's space for us to dialogue and have um, some, some differences here. Yeah. I'm curious about the three. Um, were they all established at about the same time, or are, is any one of these a newer line of thinking? Mm-hmm. One is, which we will, which I'll, t- I'll mention uh, in just just a moment. Um, so as we as we get into these, I provided just kind of a brief sketch. Um, I uh, I referenced some uh, a, a summary from Tom Schreiner in this book and um, some of my professor's notes. Uh, my professor loves charts, so all these charts are his little charts, but I love charts as well. They're helpful. So, uh, so anyway, uh, the, the first, the first view, um, there, there's a lot of, a lot of different views and variances, uh, on a broad scale than in, in the minutia of these camps, uh, painting with broad strokes here. But, um, the first big view is, is what's called pre-millennialism or for short pre-mill, your pre-mill. Uh, it's probably the most popular view in American churches today. It's one I'm sure you have all uh, heard or been taught or or familiar with. Um, So it holds that Christ will return to earth before, so that's the pre, uh, the millennium, and he will reign for a thousand years on earth. This reign uh, takes place on the present unredeemed earth, and the 1,000 years intervenes between the second coming and the final arrival of the new heavens and new earth. Um, most who hold to this view believe the millennium will last for a literal 1,000 years. Uh, it's not necessary to that position, but a lot of people do. And so if you look at the chart, you have the second coming, and then there's going to be a 1,000-year period, probably literal, but maybe, maybe figurative. And then there will be uh, another point where then um, Jesus uh, ushers in the new creation or uh, eternity happens, and there's uh, the final judgment and... Um, and the resurrection of, of, of the dead. And so the second coming comes first, and then there's uh, a thousand years, then, then eternity. Um, and so within these two camps, though, within the, two, the, two pre, uh, within the premillennial camp, rather, there's two separate camps, uh, and it depends on one's view of the rapture and of texts like First Thessalonians 4, which we, I said we would talk about today. Um, so historic premillennialists hold to what is called uh, the post-tribulation or the, the post-trib uh, position, arguing that the rapture will happen at the second coming. Uh, the rapture and the second coming happen at the same time, uh, and it follows a period of tribulation that the church is here for. Step by step revelation chronologically. And so then at the end of this tribulation, the righteous who have died will be resurrected uh, and believers who are still alive will be changed. This is, has been the historic view for those holding to premillennialism. That's why it's called the historic premillennial approach um, and was really the only premillennial view up until the beginning of the 19th century. And so, so again, uh, they might not even use the term rapture, but if, we, if we're going to use the term rapture, they would say that it happens at the, uh, at the second uh, coming, following a period of tribulation. And so it's, it's uh, post-trib because it's after the tribulation. Um, and the tribulation, would, would, they would define as uh, this, this per- intense period of, of uh, destruction and of chaos and of... of um, the wickedness on the earth. 
Then the other position is dispensational premillennialism. And this position would believe that there is a, there's a, a secret rapture of sorts that happens seven years before Jesus returns to inaugurate the millennium. This is the pre-trib approach. Uh, the church, they believe, will not go through the great tribulation. They will be caught up to Christ before he returns. Uh, they, they will be saved from the tribulation. Then Jesus will return. Then there will be a thousand years on earth and then eternity. Um, uh, it's secret in that it's, uh, well, it's like the Left Behind movies yeah. where it just happens and everyone is gone and everyone's freaking out. Um, yeah. No one knows it's coming. Oh, like people who are left don't know what Yeah. That's what's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people who, who, well, dispensationalists in general would also emphasize the fulfillment of promises to the Jewish people during the millennium. Uh, many hold to a mass conversion of Jews happening during this time. And so you asked about, uh, there, there's one more view which I'll talk about, but you asked about um, the, the view, uh, views throughout church history. Uh, this, is, this is the newest view. This, has, this view, this dispensational premillennial view did not exist for almost 1900 years of, of church history, 1800, over 1800 years of church history. Um, which is should should give us pause for one and it, yeah and it it comes out of American culture it's only it's really only in a kind of a, a an American thing and there's a bunch of other things that shape that um, the other views this historic premillennialism uh, it's found throughout church history several uh, of the church fathers held to it. Um, and I'll, I'll return here for a second with the rapture uh, after I go through these next few views. Um, the second view would be post-millennialism or post-mill, which would hold that Christ returns after or post a long period of blessing on earth. Christ will come after the millennium. The millennium will come about during the church age. And the 1,000 years are not literal, but they signify a long period of time in which the gospel progressively spreads, the world is transformed. Uh, this period then closes with the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the last judgment, arrival of new heavens and new earth. Uh, this view has been around throughout church history. Uh, it, it has been a, a minority view, though. Um, there were resurgences of it. One, one big resurgence was with uh, the, the col uh, colonization of America. And a lot of the Puritans, some of the great Puritan writers, Jonathan Edwards, uh, were uh, post-mill. And, and so the, the key there is that there's this area, there, there's this um, age of the church, and things start to get better and better as the gospel goes forth, and things get better, and then Jesus returns. Um, after World War One and Two, though, this view actually kind of just <laughs> really, and it, I mean, it, it's understandable if, if you're going to say that um, things are just going to keep getting better and better and better, and then Jesus will return, and then you <laughs> have yeah, World War II. Um, yeah. And so this, it, it's a pretty uncommon view today, but it is represented throughout church history. And so age of the church, uh, then that gradually leads into the millennium, which then has the second coming at the very end. 
Uh, and then the final position would be amillennialism, or amill for short. Literally, it, it means no millennium. When you attach ah to the front of something, it's negates it, so no millennium. Uh, it's not the best descriptor of this position. A better one is, is realized or inaugurated millennialism. They, they do, this position does believe in a millennium. It's just different than the other positions. And so in this view, the 1,000 years symbolically represent a long period of time. The number is not literal. All, all millennialists argue that the millennium began with the resurrection of Christ and will last until the second coming. During this period, deceased believers will reign spiritually with Jesus in heaven in the intermediate state as they await their future physical resurrection and the renewal of all things. During this time, Satan is bound in the sense that he was bound by the cross. He is unable to stop the spread of the gospel to the world and unable to deceive the nations to gather together for the war against God. That will only happen at the, the very end. At the end of the millennium, Christ will return once and for all. Satan will be defeated. The last judgment will come and eternity will be ushered in. This view has become more popular today and has been consistently held throughout church history. Um, you can probably tell in there, this would be the view that I would fall under. Uh, I, I think that it, it finds the best support in the text and then in the rest of the New Testament. Um, I think it does the best job of handling Revelation as apocalyptic literature non-chronological and um, some of the articles I gave you will, will talk about this. Um, there's one article uh, that I mentioned by Sam Storms about uh, why and it was actually in a series of blog posts by a bunch of different pastors and scholars about things they had changed their mind over, uh, things they changed their mind on over the years and this was his, he changed his mind, he grew up with this view of uh, the, the dispensational premillennial view and, and shifted away from that. Um, and so, yeah, if, if we want to if we want to talk for, for a moment about um, about the rapture, we can do that. Because uh, this view doesn't have that. This this view, well, I mean, this. And so every view has a rapture of sorts, right. but in the other views, because the rapture occurs at the second coming, where we're caught, it, it's just not really worth referring to it as the rapture and especially because the period of tribulation um, in the all-mill position and in the post-mill position it's it's not a literal seven years uh, there isn't a great tribulation in the way that the pre-mill dispensationalists defined it um, one thing I've, I mentioned throughout is that we are in the tribulation and so uh, the, if we're in the tribulation and then at the second coming is when we're with Christ there's just not really a use of talking about when is the rapture going to happen? Is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever? Right. Um, it, we're going to be with Jesus when he comes. So, Which is why it sounds like as I'm putting all of these things together through the weeks, like as you've been encouraging us that this is now, revelation, like what's occurring is, is occurring now in part, um, that we can endure because we're in it now. It's not like we're waiting for the tribulation to come. Yeah, and um, so uh, just a, a few things about the the rapture. Uh, again, that's it's a very um, it's a very recent view, only 150 years ago. Uh, this view it's it's hinges upon um, a very what they just call a very literal approach to everything. And so they 
take the in Daniel nine um, the the seventy weeks prophecy uh, the weeks and years whatever and they think it's just a very literal seven years that will be this period of great tribulation um, it, it's it's dependent partially on distinction between Israel and the church that dispensationalism has. There's some things that Jesus says about the great tribulation that they refer to, even though I would say the great tribulation Jesus refers to is um, not that future one. It's the, it was the siege on, on Jerusalem and, and Rome. Um, and another thing here is, uh, I mentioned this earlier, is the, the belief that God will, will save um, a whole bunch of ethnic Jews and so the, the church is raptured up. Uh, they're taken. Um, Israel kind of forfeited their spot, and it, the church is taken away. And then there's this thousand-year period where a bunch of people, uh, Jews, will be saved. So that plays into it. I don't think that's, uh, that's found in the New Testament, though. Um, that's replacement of theology? Uh, yes, and kind of. I, uh, the, the, really, the... the Key, the center of dispensationalism is a distinction between the church and uh, and Israel. Uh, they would say there's it's two separate people that of God, two separate plans. He has different plans for each of them. Uh, they don't intermix. I don't think that holds up with how the Old Testament or the New Testament talks about the people of God or or uh, the church. Um, uh, another thing and. and we kind of brought this out already that this view is just, just dependent on reading Revelation chronologically, linearly, and a futuristic uh, approach, as I've talked about. Um, and so you, you have to take it that way. And a lot of times you'll find with this view of um, the rapture, I mean, there's people can try and find it in all sorts of verses in the Bible where you're like, what, what are you, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and so people try and support it from different things. Just be be frank about it. I don't I don't think that it's uh, that this idea of a secret rapture for the seven years of great tribulation of the church uh, and then Jesus' return. I, I don't think that can be supported um, scripturally. And so if we if we took if we if we take a look at, at First Thessalonians, um, which is a, a passage that is used to to talk about uh, and support this interpretation, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. So 4.13, uh, but we do not want, you, want uh, you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with, those, with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, those who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And here's where it gets, uh, it gets to the um, important part for this preacher of rapture view. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so people take, especially that last verse, uh, those who are alive will be caught up in the air with Jesus, will be raptured. 
Um, the problem with that, I think, is, is, is there's several things. Um, for one, I think in this passage, we have the second coming. This is about the return of Jesus. Um, there are several things that point to that. One uh, is in verse, uh, verse 15, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord, that's a term, uh, uh, parousia, uh, parousia, that I mentioned earlier, that I defined as the Greek word meaning coming. It's used to talk about the second coming. Um, I think this passage is about the second coming. Uh, and so we have those who are, and the, the issue here, the Thessalonians, we have these people who they're, they're worried maybe about family or friends who have died and wondering, are, are they, is there a physical resurrection? Are they going to be resurrected? Um, what's going on? And so Paul comforts them. Don't, um, you know, don't, don't be uninformed. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. Those who are asleep, it's a way of saying those who are dead, those who have died in Christ. Um, they will be brought with Christ at the, the coming of the Lord. And those who are still alive, who haven't physically died yet, will likewise be brought together with the Lord. Um, so you don't have an issue with people getting caught up? No. You're just not caught up prior to the arrival of Christ. Exactly. I, I think that the, 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 the key is that the, pre, the dispensational premillennial approach, it, there's... There is a second coming, there's a rapture, and then there's a second coming, and then there's a thousand years later, this final return. I don't think you can separate all those things. I think they all happen at once. And especially with the rapture, I think the rapture happens at the second coming. They would say this isn't the second coming. This is a distinct event. Uh, and I, I, yeah. Uh, and so another thing here is, is that it's, it's the idea that the church gets kind of saved from the tribulation. They, they get taken out of it. Uh, the idea is that they get raptured into heaven. Um, I, I think that's built off of some, some, some wrong ideas is that we have in, in the West about salvation and that it's just about this kind of being saved and getting to heaven and that's it. Um, what's super interesting here is, is what, what Paul doesn't say. So you have to add that to the text if you're going to say they get raptured up to heaven. Because Paul doesn't say they get taken up to heaven. So he says they meet him in the air. It doesn't say where they go. And, and the, in all of Paul's letters, he only mentions once uh, about the final destination of heaven. For him, for Paul, it's about being with Jesus. It's not about a geographic location or where you are. It's that you are with Christ. It says we will always be with Christ. And so... And so it's yeah. So it's not just about it's not just about a kind of you know get out of the great tribulation free card and you just get taken up to heaven to do whatever you want. No, it's it's about being with Christ and um, and so here we're with Christ. I think what happens on the second coming is we it's it's like meeting we kind of the the, the entourage that we welcome him as he returns on the clouds with. Uh, with the saints who ha have died in Christ and those who are still alive, welcome him, and he comes and, and judges and, and does uh, what, he, um, what he has come to do for the second coming. And that is when there's this physical resurrection. And so I, I think 
there's a lot of language in this passage about the, the trumpet of God, uh, the dead of Christ will rise, the resurrection happening, that, it, that it, it has to happen at the second coming. And I think this is also clarified in 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul's second letter to the same church. He talks about in the first chapter about the future judgment, um, which he says in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, this is verse... Uh, uh, verse, verse nine or ten. When he comes on that day, it's the same. It's actually the same word. When he comes, it's the same word. Uh, parousia, this second coming. When he comes again on that day, uh, and that's when final judgment happens. And so, again, I don't think we can separate when the final judgment happens and then when he returns to to rapture people and when he returns just to, to establish his reign, think in the rest of the New Testament, it's all, uh, all happening at the same time. And that's the biggest issue that we have with, uh, which we find with this premillennial interpretation is that you have to, you have to find a way to, um, I think, go against the clear, clear teaching of some of the letters and the other, uh, areas in scripture that, that show that all of these things happen at one time on the second coming where you have the final judgment, the defeat of Satan, the resurrection of believers, uh, the beginning of the eternal kingdom. And if you take this premillennial approach, you have to say, no, there's a rapture, then Jesus comes, the earth is, is uh, unredeemed, and there's a thousand year period where he's reigning, but there's still unbelievers and, and there's sin and whatnot, That's and then finally at the end, one of the one questions I had in the last Revelation study that was in was, so you're saying we're, you're going to have glorified human beings on earth at the same time as unglorified human beings, and we're going to rule over, I mean, how can a glorified person not rule over unglorified people, but, you know? Exactly, and, and so this is bound up again with this chronological linear view, but if you do that, you have to be inconsistent because in chapter 19, we saw, uh, and I pointed out that everyone who is not in Christ is destroyed. It says, kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, all men, free and slave, small and great, everyone is destroyed. And then you get into chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 2, the dragon is, is bound and thrown down for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations. Well, what nations? They were just all destroyed. And so you have to either say, well, that's not, this one isn't literal, or chapter 19 wasn't literal, or you have to come up with some crazy interpretation that, oh, well, uh, there were babies who survived, now they're all grown up, and that's them. It just doesn't work, because I think that chapter 19 clearly shows that everyone is, is judged on the second coming of Christ. And then chapter 20, we, we see that there are still nations around. I think what we have is that chapter 20 is, in terms of the visions and the sequence in the book, it comes after, but temporally and chronologically, it happened before. This is a recapitulation. This is a reframing of what we saw in chapter 12, this war between the dragon and, uh, and the angels in heaven. This is another way of framing it here. We have, and if you want to turn to chapter 12, see some of these parallels, it's quite, uh, quite interesting. Chapter 12 is uh, 
the woman who gives birth to a, to a child and is pursued by the, the dragon. Uh, in chapter 12, we have the dragon, obviously. Uh, and then in verse 7, there's a war in heaven. Uh, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And when he was defeated, there was no longer any place for him. The great dragon was thrown down. Here in chapter 20, the dragon was thrown down. Same word. Also note the description of the dragon. It's the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Here it is uh, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. It's almost the same description. And that's the only time we see those two descriptions in the book. I think it shows that this is the same thing happening. Uh, give me just a sec. Um, again, he's thrown down to earth with his angels. Uh, he's thrown down here to the, the bottomless pit or the abyss. Um, and this is just a super technical argument based on some, some word studies in, in Greek and the way that the term abyss is used with the term earth and all throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, and I, I think one, one thing that can be argued pretty persuasively is that uh, the pit and the earth are he's thrown down. Same thing. Uh, and, and so another, another thing that stands out is he's thrown down to earth. And then, uh, let's see, verse, uh, at, the, at the very end of chapter 12, um, the, there's the sand on the sea. sea. He sta- stood on the, the sand of the sea. Um, the, this is the, the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. And then here, uh, we find in verse 7 of chapter 20 that the Satan, the dragon, who is assembling uh, the, the nations for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And so there's so many connections and parallels here that I, I think it's best to see this as a recapitulation, a reframing of this first uh, first narrative we found in chapter 12. Yeah. Back up for what you're saying. Preachers have been preaching it for forever, as far as I know, is that when God says something and He repeats it, it's to get your attention. Yeah. More, more times, well, seven being a great number, but three being most common. Repeat, God repeats something three times, you better pay attention. Yeah. Or seven, how many ever times it repeats? The more He repeats it, the more. And it's not because it means more to Him, it's because we're so thick headed, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 it's not that John's rewriting the same vision over it. He's getting different visions of the same thing. Yeah. He's like the guy sitting in front of the TV that has all the cameras at the football field. Yeah. You know, he's getting a different vision one after the other. And it does seem it's written like like you look at Isaiah and you look at the prophets, they're constantly swirling back to the yeah. same events yeah. with a different take. And it just, it's not written like a gospel where it's, like it's supposed to be chronological. It's written more in the style of these the exactly. where it's swirling back on its Exactly. And well, then it's part of the whole thing. We're not supposed to know exactly. We're supposed to be prepared all the time. We're not yeah. supposed to know exactly. Well, it's going to happen on July 20th, 2020. 
Tuesday yeah. that's when Christ is coming back. I don't have to get prepared until the week before that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, um, there, and so what we would have here with the thousand years, and what the amillennial position argues is that the thousand years, the millennium, is the, the age of the church from the resurrection until the second coming. So here, the thousand years, it's the church age. I think you can argue that then again based on the connection with chapter 12 uh, and 11 and 13 where we have the time period, um, uh, the time period, uh, 1260 days, 42 months, times, a time, times, and half a times. It's all taken from, from Daniel um, where I, I think we saw that this is it's the age of the church. And so again, I, I think it's just a way of using these figurative numbers for, for the age of the church. And Satan is bound during this time. That's one thing that um, a premium. Yeah, and so what? Uh, so a, a pre-trib approach would have a problem with saying that Satan is bound right now because yeah. you know just read the news. Satan is is clearly active in the world, and and we have other uh, passages in Scripture. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the the ruler of this earth. Uh, I don't think that what it means by him being bound. It's not a complete binding of him. But if we look at the rest of the verse, he's bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He's, he's bound in regards to a specific purpose. And then when we get to verse 8, he is un, uh, verse 7, he is unbound and he comes out and finally deceives the nations to gather them for battle. So what it means that Satan is bound right now is that he is unable to deceive uh, the nations to gather together for this final battle against the church. He, he wants to destroy the church. That is what Satan is doing. That's what we saw in chapter 12, which was rehashing this whole thing. He was going out into the wilderness to, uh, to try and persecute the woman and persecute her offspring. Um, but they were nourished. They were kept safe. He can't do that now. God has, has the, the cross has bound him. Uh, the, the victory of Christ on the cross has bound him. Uh, He's unable to deceive the nations to bring them all together to defeat the church. And he's also unable to deceive the nations in the sense that uh, the gospel now goes to the ends of the earth. Uh, and the gospel is going to continue to go to the ends of the earth um, until he is then given for a short period of time. Um, he, yeah, for, for a short period of time, which is significant when we look at all the other big numbers, uh, to, to gather them for battle. Uh, which we which we saw in chapter 19 was that same battle. Um, is that all making sense so far? Is there any any questions? Any uh, are we seeing some of these connections? Well, my question I don't even think it's related. Well, it's related, but it goes back a little bit further. Um, two things I want to point out. One that Kevin said about um, the the God that the one to become, the one who rules over the others. And then you said that we're in the pre-tribulation time now. So in that retrospect, isn't it as if we're already doing that? Because you have the good and you have the bad. You have the saints and you have the ones that aren't. So technically, isn't the good, well, maybe we're not rulers of mm -hmm. others. But in the same sense, the good does outweigh the bad. Yeah, and we, we find uh, what we find here in chapter twenty is those who are um, those who conquer, who, who were faithful unto death, they rule with Christ, and so uh, we will eventually completely rule with Christ. I think right now there's a, a spiritual um, 
sense for those who are in the, this intermediate state, they have died in Christ, they're awaiting this physical resurrection for a ruling. And so we've talked about through Revelation this already not yet, and we definitely feel that tension in areas like this where these realities are here, kind of, but not completely. Right, and then the other thing I have is this. You talk about the Thessalonians, I was talking about, I always felt that I'm going to be fractured. I'm going to be like, um, me and the young lady here were talking about the movie um, Left Behind. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be gone. Mm -hmm. That's the way that I've seen it. So now I'm a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if I just really need to read more about the millennium and the yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I need to really read that more to come to a better understanding because that scripture is all about saying, yeah, I'm pre-trib or post-trib or whatever, but I know I'm going to be taken up and I'm not going to be left behind. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I need to. Yeah, and, and so, again, there is a, a rapture of sorts in that those who are in Christ are taken up to be with, with God. But what I, what I am saying is that it, it happens all at once with the second coming of Christ, with the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth, with the resurrection of, um, of, of the saints, uh, the final judgment. And so it all happens at once. And so um, we are going through this tribulation. Um, and sure, before the end, it might increase. We are protected spiritually for, uh, from, from this we don't get to avoid it all physically, but in the very end, we, we are saved and we, are, we get to be with, with the Lord. Yeah. Even, even the people that preach, preach the rapture, not preacher, preacher of rapture, will tell you that you're not to be looking for signs of the tribulation, you're to be looking for the second coming. Right. Um, you're not to be looking for really good preacher. I mean, you're supposed to be living like a rapture, like Christ is coming, Christ is at the door. Exactly. You know, exactly. That's the point, to be prepared. Right. Yeah. Matt, can you tell us the word tribulation? Is that in the Greek? Is that just like the same picture of trials? I yeah, a trial or testing or. Um, or I think, you know, the Bible yeah. talks about that for us as God's people as we're waiting, we're looking for Jesus, to be with Jesus, that this mm -hmm. is what our life is. Trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah. in the very beginning of the book, John says that he is a partner with us in the tribulation. Yeah. So that's another well, evidence. So those that are, excuse me, those that have died in Christ, um, that's all happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit. We have a question. Okay. So are we taking up the Lord in the air and then I need to come back riding my horse with him? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's for. Uh, for those who, for those who are in Christ and who die, they are presently in the presence of God, uh, reigning with Him. And those of us, when Jesus returns, uh, who are still alive, we we meet Jesus. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's there, there's a part of it that is 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 so symbolic and so figurative that you know I don't know if we're each going to have our own horse and be seated on it. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I think it, I mean, in like, I don't know, <laughs> temporally, I don't know how quick of a turnaround there is, or, you know, am I going to have time to 
you know, change and put on my white robes. Uh, but I think the point is that that this it's it, this it all happens. It's this distinct event that happens. This final day of the Lord that happens, and these um, all these things are created. Yeah. Where does it say that Christ will come and put his feet on the Mount of Olives and one, you know, he'll divide the Mount of Olives into two? Where is that? Is that in Joel? I can't think of any any place for that. I thought that was the second coming. The Christ will. Yeah. Yeah. It's still it's still aligns though. Yeah. Yeah, I would I I not I can't off the top of my head uh, picture what what one you're thinking of. I need my phone now. I'm just looking at it. Yeah. yeah. I think you said this. I'm just I'm I'm thinking like about the whole chapter then like your picture that would really never open us with chickens for us as believers to be encouraged to be challenged to be strengthened to know that God will judge and that. The victory is secure. He will reign. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Being with him as he. Yeah, and there's there's several more things we could talk about. Uh, I mean, we could go through the rest of the chapter. I'll quickly give an overview, and then we'll talk just more uh, more about the the different millennial views. So the rest of the chapter, then in seven seven to ten, I think again we have this rehashing of the final battle. Um, because it is again in verse 8 it is the battle the same battle in chapter 11 13 16 and 19 um, with Gog and Magog it's drawn from Ezekiel 38 and 39 Uh, these were the troops that were assembled in chapter 16 as well in the sixth uh, bowl and so so now they're they're brought together they're uh, assembled by Satan uh, and they are they are defeated very easily by by the Lord, and then eleven to fifteen, we have the the great judgment before the throne. Uh, I mean, his pre- before for his presence, earth and sky fled away. The universe. This is at the end of history. The universe as we know it is coming to an end. Uh, that's we find that same description in chapter six and chapter sixteen. Um, Book of life. Judgment according to, to works, what you have done, which shows are you in Christ or not. And we have the sea giving up the dead, death and Hades giving up the dead, and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, second death, the lake of fire, and anyone not, throw, not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. They suffer eternal punishment. Yeah, that's, just, that's just a crazy high-activity little Yes, yes, there's a lot that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, did you say that the um, the, the uh, Satan will not be able to deceive the nations? Right now, yes. Yeah. Because in um, twenty verse seven it says, "When a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations." that are at the four corners of the earth. And then verse 10, it says the devil who had deceived them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's during the thousand years, which I believe is the church age right now. He cannot deceive the nations. At the end of history, it says uh, he is released for a little while and he, uh, is able, he now is able to deceive the nations as this final war is coming. He is deceiving the nations. 
In what way? Satan is um, alive and well, and he is deceiving people. Exactly. And, and, what, what I, and what I said, though, and I qualified it, that it's not a complete... So the, the, the deception it's referring to, we see in, at the end of verse, um, verse 3 and then in verse 8, it's deception for the purpose of bringing them to destroy the, try and destroy the church. And sure, Satan is alive and well, but he is not able now to have a hold on the whole earth, whereas where, where the, go- the gospel is spreading throughout the earth, and he can't stop the gospel, and he can't, until God says he can, he can't uh, assemble the nations for the final battle. He doesn't get to decide when it is. It's when God says, all right, I'm releasing you. You can, you can do this. Yeah, no. we, can't, we can't make that statement because we don't know who's saved well, and who's not. Because there's so many people that we don't know. But the majority, it says the, the gate is the road and the gate is narrow for those who believe. Right. But it's wide for those who don't believe. So the majority are going through that wide gate and they haven't. But we, yeah, we also have Revelation seven, a great multitude that no one can number, and so yeah. you know, I don't want to put a limit on on what what is a lot and what is a little, you know. So well, I'm sure a lot, and I'm sure that there's yeah. going to be a um, we call it a, a Exactly, and that's that's the continuity I'm talking about with the rest of the New Testament. I think that the amillennial position does a better job of accounting for that. Um, if I can just real quick walk through a couple of points and show you how I would see some of these things. So in verse four, there's thrones in heaven, and those who uh, are reigning with God um, and, and who have authority to judge, they are on the thrones. In Revelation, the word thrones is used a ton, unless it's talking about the throne of Satan, which it is a few times, here it's not. If it's talking about thrones, it's talking about thrones in heaven. And so this isn't a literal reign on the earth, contra the pre-millennial position, which believes that it is a literal reign on the earth for a thousand years. This is a reign in heaven that is going on during the age of the church. Those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Um, they came alive and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, for the, the age of the church. And so this, this is those in the, the, the intermediate state. They have died. They do not have resurrected bodies. 
uh, yet they are spiritually reigning with Christ. This is the first resurrection, it says. Those would be the people under the throne. Yes, that we saw back in chapter 6. And over such people, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and Christ will reign for a thousand years. And so we have mentioned the first resurrection and the second death. So clearly there's also a first, there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection and a first death and a second death. Just lay my cards out. I think that the first resurrection mentioned here is, uh, it's a spiritual resurrection. It's the intermediate state. Those who die before the second coming of Jesus, who are currently in his presence, uh, reigning with him. The second resurrection is the physical resurrection where we have all believers who are, are resurrected, given their glorified bodies. That's what we find in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians. When we meet the Lord in the air, those who were with Christ, who were asleep, as it says, come. Those who are alive, come together, receive physical bodies. That's what we also find in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the first death would be a physical death, death for all people, and it's something that all, believe, all people's believers and unbelievers alike experience. The second death, so the, so the first death, sure, can have power over, over us. The second death, they says, it says, has no power over them. Because the second death is the eternal spiritual and physical uh, punishment for unbelievers thrown into the lake of fire. It says that is the second death. And so first and second uh, when, it, when it uses that language in Revelation and in other New Testament texts, first refers to life in this present age, and second, or new, refers to the future eternal uh, new creation, the coming creation. A good example of this is in chapter 21, the first heaven and the first earth pass away, and the new heaven and new earth come. And so the first, it, it's not about a temporal, uh, chronological order as much as it is a, a qualitative the first belongs to the present and the second or the, the new belongs to uh, the, the future, to the coming creation. The, the author of Hebrews does similar things. And so um, the, the second resurrection is future, physical resurrection of all believers. The second death is the eternal spiritual judgment of unbelievers. Um, so that's how I would see some of those, those things in, in this passage. I, I think that it's, it's significant to, to point some of those things out, especially the thrones in heaven, because this rule is happening in heaven. If you take a pre-mill position that says this reign is happening literally on earth, then, then you can't account for that, because every other time the throne is used in Revelation, it's talking about in heaven. Uh, and so you have to either betray your literal hermeneutic or your literal approach or do something with it. Um, and then as I talked about the next section, it's the final battle again. It's the battle, the same battle, and the future judgment. Um, and so that, that, that kind of is an overview of at least what I'm, what I'm trying to show and, and what, I'm, what, I, what I've just been laboring the, the entire study that has led up to this is, again, trying to show that the book of Revelation is relevant for us today, that it's not just about the far distant future, it's about the past and the present, that we are in the tribulation, so to speak, that we are currently 
uh, in the church age experiencing um, some of the seals and bowls and trumpets uh, and, and a whole piece of this is taking an approach that, that sees this as apocalyptic literature that needs to be interpreted symbolically um, through clues in the text, through the allusions we find to the Old Testament. Um, the, the premillennial approach would take a um, would, would take a view that, that they, they want to be as literal as possible and it has to be chronological or else it doesn't work. And so uh, that, that's, I, I just, based off of the um, evidence in the text and in the rest of the New Testament, I, I can't get there. I don't think that it can, um, that it can be chronological. Uh, and so a couple of those articles I gave you, uh, there, there's one that I have, that meteor one I mentioned um, that I didn't hand out, but if you want it, you can, you can grab it after. One thing that he does is he walks through uh, a bunch of other relevant New Testament texts talking about um, the second coming or the future. Uh, and his point is that, one, is that taking a passage like, like Revelation 20, it's very complex, very, very heavily debated. It's apocalyptic, it's symbolic. And to just build a, a, a doctrine off of that um, is unwise it, to do that against uh, other clear texts in Scripture. And so um, one, one thing Storms, Sam Storm says is, um, what he argues is that reading these texts through, uh, uh, let me just read this whole thing. Um, my contention is not that the passages in Paul and John and Peter simply omit reference to a post-second coming millennial age. So he's not saying that, it's not that they uh, just don't talk about it. If that was the case, then you could conceivably harmonize Revelation teaching this premillennial position and then say, well, nowhere else in scripture says that it doesn't happen, so we can harmonize it. What he argues is that other pa these other passages in, in John and Paul and Peter, uh, they they cannot hold that position because they logically preclude the existence of such a, such a kingdom. He says that um, a premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20 actually contradicts the clear and unequivocal assertions in such texts as John 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, Hebrews 11, 2 Peter 3. So rather than reading these texts through the grid of Revelation 20, Revelation 20 should be read in the clear light of the former. Sound hermeneutical or uh, interpretational procedure would call on us to interpret the singular and obscure in the light of the plural and explicit. To make the rest of the New Testament, not to mention the Old Testament, bend to the standard of one text in the most controversial, symbolic, and by scholarly consensus most difficult book in the Bible is hardly commendable, uh, is a hardly a commendable interpretational method. We simply must not allow a singular apocalyptic tale to wag the entire epistolary dog. We must not force the whole of scripture to dance to the tune of Revelation 20. So that's uh, part of his argument there, uh, which I, I find pretty convincing. 
And uh, he, he walks through that a bit in um, the, the little post, the blog post, Why I Changed My Mind About the Millennium. And he talks about his journey there. And if you flip, it's on the very last page of that packet. And he offers some scriptural challenges for premillennialists. He says, if you are a premillennialist, whether dispensational or not, there are several things with which you must reckon. You must necessarily believe that physical death will continue to exist beyond the time of Christ's second coming. You must necessarily believe that the natural creation will continue beyond the time of Christ's second coming to be subjected to the curse imposed by the fall of man. You must necessarily believe that the new heavens and new earth will not be introduced until a thousand years after the return of Christ. You must necessarily believe that unbelieving men and women will still have the opportunity to come to saving faith in Christ for at least 1,000 years after his return. You must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not be finally resurrected until at least 1,000 years subsequent to the return of Christ. And you must necessarily believe that unbelievers will not be finally judged and cast into eternal punishment until at least a thousand years after the return of Christ. So what's wrong with believing these things, asks the premillennialist. What's wrong is that these things, that these many things that premillennialists must believe because of the way they interpret scripture, the New Testament explicitly denies. In other words, in my study of the second coming of Christ, I discovered that contrary to what premillennialism requires us to believe, death is defeated and swallowed up in victory at the second coming. The natural creation is set free from its bondage to corruption at the second coming. The new heavens and the new earth are introduced immediately following the second coming. All opportunity to believe Christ as Savior terminates at the second coming and both the final resurrection and eternal judgment of unbelievers will occur at the time of the second coming. Simply put, the New Testament portrayals of the second coming of Christ forced me to conclude that a millennial millennial age subsequent to Christ's return of the sort proposed by premillennialism was impossible. The second factor that turned me from premillennialism to amillennialism was the study of Revelation 20, this text cited by all premillennialists in support of their theory. Contrary to what I had been taught and long believed, I came to see Revelation 20 as a strong and immovable support for the amillennial perspective. And then he, he mentions that he, he has a whole book, this whole book on defending amillennialism. Um, It says Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron, with an iron rod. Mm-hmm. Why will he need one? There won't be anybody that's not bowing to him voluntarily. <laughs> like uh, it, for a premillennial position or for an amillennial position? For, for a premillennial position. Yeah. It says, it says yeah. I forget words. Well, in 19, and, then, and as I mentioned too in chapter 20, if you have chronologically the defeat of all peoples yeah. and then him reigning it, you have to have people then get in, yeah. into there somehow. And you also have, uh, you, you also have, um, ha- have these things that, and as he shows, and in this longer paper he walks through, that the New Testament seems to show very clearly that at the second coming things will happen, like the defeat of Satan, the, the, uh, the renewal of creation, Romans 8, um, 
the receiving of new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Death is banished, it is defeated, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, All these things that happen and that the people are judged, you don't have another chance to repent and believe. And if you're going to say that you think Christ returns and then there's a thousand years until that happens, I think that the rest of the New Testament can't support that. And so um, what he argues is that uh, based on all those things, we we shouldn't try and then contradict uh, Revelation. But also what he says too is that we're we're not coming to the... what, What I'm not saying is that Revelation can't mean this because the rest of the New Testament uh, doesn't say this. That's partly what I'm saying, but also I think that you can offer a a viable and I think more convincing uh, interpretation of Revelation 20 that then fits with the rest of the New Testament. Um, And you don't have to to grapple with those things like, well, so there's still sin and death for a thousand years after Christ returns? Honestly, and, and we shouldn't come to conclusions based off of our our feelings and emotions, but that's a pretty depressing thing. If Jesus is going to return and then for a thousand years there's still going to be pain and suffering and sin, I don't think that's what what the rest of of Scripture shows. And so, um, I mean, in a nutshell, like you could write a book this big about it in an hour. That's uh, what I what I uh, would present as what Revelation is doing here. Um, I find that your view seems to be a lot better cross-referenced and tied together through the whole scripture. Yeah, and that's a that's a big a big uh, something of, of major importance is that it connects with the rest of scripture and um, and that it it accords with um, what we find in um, other passages and especially clear passages passages that aren't as debated. Um, uh, not truly. It, it is those who are who are dead in Christ who who have the uh, opportunity of reigning with Him right now. And upon His return, we all, whether dead or if you were still alive in uh, in Christ, will reign with Him. And so it's those right now who are, are reigning with Him as they are as they are um, awaiting the uh, promise of their physical bodies. Yeah. So any um, any questions or pushback or just wondering how it would fit with other other things? I know we're if you have to leave, you totally can, but I'm I'm able to keep that. Questions or did, is everyone tracking? I know this is just a lot of uh, 
lot of stuff. So, so uh, I've got a question about the dispensational premillennialists, that it's sort of a recent view. Mm -hmm. Why did it become so seemingly prevalent outside of, so I have a guess, one of, well, in the Western culture, we haven't experienced severe persecution, and so it just feels comfortable to have a view mm -hmm. where you're going to be able to skip out on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just wondering if there, we've got all these great biblical churches, mm -hmm. has there been talk at the university about how this got so... Yeah, um, yeah, I talked about it, um, uh, and, and because it, really it's a part of a, a whole larger uh, scheme of the, the dispensational approach to the Bible as a whole. and. Um, I talked about this last semester in one of my classes, and uh, there, there's so much tied to everything that's going on in, in the culture. And so a lot of, uh, uh, when this came about, it was really at the same time of the, the evolution, um, the scientific um, push for evolution and evolutionary worldview. The church is fighting back against that in some ways, but also uh, the church completely adopts, in other ways, this view. And so... Um, in the rise of modernity and this post-enlightenment um, shift, we have this idea that kind, kind of that, that you're seeing in, in the sciences, objective study of these things and um, very scientific process. Christians then, under a, uh, you know, a religious guise, apply that to scripture and try and take a very... Um, scientific approach and you see that in scholarship and in the academy uh, one thing that happened there with the rise of modernity is the, the idea that you can be completely objective in in studying the text and so we can interpret it literally and objectively um, and I'm not going full postmodern and saying there's no truth and that nothing there is objective truth but uh, one thing that we need to come back to is we're all shaped by our culture and our times and by our experiences and we have presuppositions and all these things that drive the way we uh, interpret things. And so that's part of it is you have this idea, no, we can interpret very objectively, very scientifically, and the whole push and the, the appeal of um, a dispensational position is, no, we interpret literally. We do interpret literally. And that sounds good. It sounds like that is what, you know, oh, we really, we really value God's word. We're going to take it literally. Um, and, and so that, then there's this shift, whereas the rest of church history, or today I, I think that we can say, no, we're interpreting this literally, and what it literally means is symbolic. And, and, uh, and, so, uh, and, and so, so yeah, there, that, there, and there's so, so many other things that um, bring rise to that and, um, and ways that it's been um, shaped too by so the, uh, the, I mentioned this earlier, the primary core of dispensationalism is the difference between the church and Israel. Um, dispensationalists believe that, um, that there is still, that God still has a plan for the Jews. Um, if you look at, uh, Jew, if you look at Jewish like seminaries and stuff around the nation, they, they only accept Jews and white American evangelical Christians. Because they believe, because they're, they're, if they come from a dispensationalist background, they believe that there's, they, they have this, they 
love the nation of Israel. They believe that there's some, there is some future thing with that land. And, uh, and I mean, and, and you think about too, World War II and the Nazis. And so obviously we want to, we want to not, we want to end this and, and show that this is, this is wrong. And we, and even if you're dispensationalist or not, that this is clearly wrong. But then there's now this extra emphasis of, in reaction to that, uh, over focus on maybe Israel, and so there's a whole lot of issues that then get stirred around in the pot that lead to this this focus on um, this this thing, and a lot of it I think is bound in the um, uh, what was going on with scientific uh, methods, and then just accepting that into into biblical interpretation and this literal interpretation and uh, neglect for. Um, the, the history of, of interpretation, um, one, one thing that you've, you find post-enlightenment is kind of this, uh, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. You know, we're more advanced, we, are, we know way more now, and so you lose hold of the first 1,800 years of what the church believed, and you get these new uh, doctrines and, and perspectives, uh, and so there's so much bound into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The whole Bible is put together by Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, Americans, you're taught from the time that you learn to read top to bottom, right, right to left, top to bottom. You know, that's not how that's not how Hebrew is. <laughs> you know, it's backwards. Yeah. And most of the most, as I understand it, most Eastern people don't read top to bottom, right to left. You know. Yeah. And so there's there's so many things that shape the way that we, we read scripture. Um, and, and it's the process of continually returning to scripture and letting scripture shape our interpretation and not bringing our own thoughts to scripture and letting the word of God refine us and, and returning over and over. Which is why Matt, I appreciate so much like, the work of, that you're doing and bringing all the illusions in. Because mm-hmm. only when we like really start to learn and see how the Bible is using the Bible all the time to keep helping us interpret and understand things that will have that desire. And that's another, going back to your question, another huge thing. Because dispensationalists make that distinction, uh, the Old Testament is not for Christians. It's for Jews. And so it's not really relevant. I mean, you can read it, it interesting, but and 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 even extreme dispensationalists would say that the church uh, the church begins um, at Pentecost, and so even like they would say that the Gospels aren't even really for us because it was Jewish like Sermon on the Mount. No, he's talking to Jews, not for us. Um, and so you so they stop reading the Old Testament. And how are you going to understand Revelation if you don't read the Old Testament? And so that's another um, thing that, that factors into it. It's interesting. We came across um, in 300 AD Tychonus, you say it that way, I don't know, said that it is now the hungry, or the morning. Yeah, yeah. 300 AD. Yeah, and so there's very, very, and there was, there, there were some people from in early church history who took a premillennial view, uh, not the dispensational approach, but the approach that said um, th- that, that there will be a more literal thousand years. But um, I think throughout church history, the most consistent one um, has been the, the all-millennial approach. And, um, well, it must have been you know. exciting right around the year 1000, because people would be, oh, 
So uh, we'll, we'll end it there. I know we, we took a while. Um, the one thing I want to end with um, and that we can walk away with as complex and confusing as this is, whether you agree with, with what I presented or not, whether um, you're still trying to figure it out. Uh, I, I like uh, some people um, like to say when you ask what's your view on the tribulation, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? I'm pan-trib. It's all going to pan out in the end. Um, <laughs> And, and so, that's pretty much. Yeah, over, over the over all of church history, there's been um, a, a lot of debate on this. It's, it's so much writing. Um, what what can we take away from this chapter, from the, this section as a whole? Uh, no matter what what view we take, what is what is true? It is that Jesus will return. He will vindicate his people. He will judge his enemies and defeat them. Uh, and it will certainly happen, and we can all look forward to that. And so um, as we've gone through the whole book and talking about big picture, that is the stuff that I want us to take away, is that hope that Jesus will return. He, he will, um, as we saw at the beginning of 19, um, he, the one sitting on, on the horse is called Faithful and True. Jesus is faithful and true, and that's why it said, we'll say a few times in these closing chapters, um, this, this word is faithful and true. Uh, because we can believe these things will happen. Uh, it, it will pan out in some way. And, and so uh, be encouraged that, that Jesus reigns. He, he is king, he's king of kings, lord of lords, and he will be faithful. He will return for his people, um, whether that's, that's in a literal thousand years or tomorrow, or who knows, um, it will happen. And so that's what we can take away, and that can shape our lives. That, sh- that should shape our, our, uh, our lives as Christians, as the church. Um, and so that, that is something that, that I want to stress more than any position um, that, that we could take. Jesus will return. And that's something, that is something throughout all of church history uh, in the creeds and everything that has been agreed on. Um, and, and so even, even in the song we sang today at the end of the ser- service, which is based on the Apostles' Creed, um, there's acknowledgement of the the resurrection uh, and that we will rise again and and Jesus will return and so we can be encouraged by that yeah Yeah. Uh, oh sorry what oh 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 and that is something I forgot to mention thank you for bringing that up Uh, no we're not meeting next week Um, I uh, I'm gonna be in Spokane for a, a ministry conference and It'd just be crazy to try and drive back Saturday evening and have time to throughout the week. So, uh, so no, no meeting next week. Um, I will have. Uh, I, I'm, I'll, I'll probably try and send out an email, but I'm also going to have Alyssa um, try and put it in the bulletin, and it'll be announced at the end of the service. But, uh, but yeah, no. So if you know anyone who wasn't here, we're not meeting next week, and then we'll come back. And uh, what we will. What we'll do for next, uh, next time, if you want to be thinking about it for a couple of weeks, is uh, chapter 21 and then the first few verses of 22.